Hello, and welcome to Spectacles Bird's Eye. I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clinton. We're so glad to have you. Today we'll be discussing the basics of democratic theory and liberal democracy, what you need to know, and why it's useful going forward with Spectacles and Spectacles Bird's Eye. Thanks for tuning in. All right, I think we just sort of want to hit the ground running with some basic idea of what liberal democracy is. Yeah. And we'll try and get to it at a relatively quick clip so we can sort of discuss it. So it's theoretical stuff more, but let's start with that. Um, why, don't you, why don't you take it off, Philip? Yeah, sure. So liberal democracy is, it's a term basically that could be used to describe most modern democracies in right. the world, the US, Japan. UK, all over the world, you know, it can be a little confusing because these terms like liberal and democracy have all kinds of, you know, common sense meanings and popular speech meanings. But we're just sort of going to talk about what liberal democracy means in sort of this theoretical context that will help with our discussions. And first of all, liberal democracy is a form of government that combines the ideas of liberalism and democracy. So we'll just define both of those. So Harry, why don't you say something about democracy? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is the more intuitive of the two concepts, right? I think we all have a pretty good sense of what it means, but it's worth going over real quickly. So, I mean, basically, right, the idea is that the people rule, right? Authority, the ultimate authority in a society or in a community stems from the people, the citizens. A a majority of the people. Right. Usually a majority, sometimes like a qualified majority or something like that, but usually a majority of um, the people and what they have to say. Um, and it can be, right, direct, right? You probably, you know, in, in, in a high school civics class, right, you probably talk about like direct democracy like Athens or indirect democracy, which is what we see all over the world today, better suited for mass society, I think, is the idea. Um, yeah, where, and, and go I, some good examples of direct versus indirect democracy, just to give you an idea if those terms are sort of unfamiliar. Direct democracy, you could think of things like referenda, popular votes. Yeah. Like with Brexit, you can see both at work. You can see direct democracy at work in the referendum to call for leaving the EU. They put it to a popular vote. The decision was not determined by those in parliament, but by simply what the majority of people in the UK voted for, and they happened to vote to leave by a slim margin, right? Right. And then you can see indirect democracy at work in actually negotiating the leave. Right. They weren't right. sitting there posing referenda for every decision that had to be made. Instead, they had people elected like Boris Johnson, who had expressed, you know, his strategy for leaving the EU. Right. He was responsible to. So that's sort of indirect democracy, voting, electing people who take care of the minutia of government rather than putting everything to a vote right. of the people. Right. Representatives who you know, party platform express what they're going to do in power. You vote for them. And then they're empowered to make decisions by right. the people. So the ultimate authority still lies with the people, either directly in a referenda, referendum, or in elected representatives. Right. So it's a pretty intuitive concept. I think liberalism is somewhat more difficult for Americans because in the United States, liberal has connotations of being center-left or progressive or even socialist in most of history and in pretty much everywhere else in the world right now, liberal um, means something different. So I think it's important, right, to get a grasp of the what it means in that sense, which I think is the one that gives you sort of the most leverage um, for understanding what liberal democracy 
um, is. So do you want to sort of explain a little bit about that, Philip? Yeah. So liberalism is rather than, you know, left-leaning. What it, what it means in this context and what we mean when we say liberal democracy is it's a philosophy that believes in the equality of individuals and that individuals all possess certain inalienable rights, right? That's very familiar language, right? From the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That men are created equal and are in possession of certain inalienable rights. Right. Um, right. It also means freedom, right? I think that's also useful to say, right? That like liberal comes from, or this shares with, you know, the root being liberty, right? Right. I don't remember the Latin word, even though I took Latin in college and high school, but I don't <laughs> remember. It's like liber is like, you know, uh, yeah. to, to free. So, so it means freedom as well, right? And that, and, and that you have these rights to life, liberty, and then property and or pursuit of happiness, like three right. and a half main rights, 3.5. <laughs> yeah. So the liberal democracy then, you could think about it this way. It's rather than simply democracy as we defined it, which is sort of rule by the majority. Right. When you have liberal democracy, you have democratic decision-making structures where people vote right. and you do what the majority decides and right. all that, or, you know, however you define a majority, whether you got an electoral college or something complicated, but either way, right. a, a voting, a vote decides government direction. Mm-hmm. But when you combine liberalism with it, what you get is a vote determines government direction, but there are certain guarantees about what the government can and cannot do. Yeah, exactly. Right? Even if a majority votes to do something bad to a minority of the population, it can't violate, the government can't violate, and the majority can't violate certain inalienable rights that are also entitled to people who don't win the election. So when combined liberal democracy, liberalism and democracy, right? You get liberal democracy. And that has a few defining characteristics. First of all, you've got equality before the law, right? You've got rule of law, which means that the leaders are also equal by the rules in the same way as people are, right? So, you know, a leader can't violate, you know, a, a legal statute just because they happen to have political power, right? Equality before the law not only applies to all private citizens, which it does, but, but it officials. also applies to public officials. Yeah. So you would also have representatives chosen in free and fair elections, right? So that means that, you know, everyone gets a vote. Everyone is entitled to a vote when they choose their representatives. Um, and those representatives, as we said, right, do the work of governing in this indirect democracy that we have around the world today. We've got uh, freedom of expression as well. And uh, that, right, I mean, that means free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and then also the right to assembly so people can gather together. And I think that last one is kind of interesting because it also means that, and in the press and freedom of the press and, you know, generally freedom of expression <clears throat> and assembly, I think, are important because they indicate that it's not just at the point of election when representatives are chosen that people exercise their authority, but in between elections as well. Right. So you can write an, a news article in favor of a, a certain policy, or you can speak out in a, in right. publicly in favor of a certain policy or assemble and, and protest a certain policy. It's so, not just that you get to cast a vote. Right. It's that you can also speak your mind in between elections. Right. Which and, would influence the behavior of public officials. Right. Um, I think it, because it, they know they're going to have to win the next vote. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to try, they're going to have to be responsive at least to some people's requests in between elections yeah. otherwise they'll get a bad reputation right you know right and i think one 
interesting example of that was in 2017. There was a lot of controversy because Republicans in Congress and President Donald Trump wanted to repeal um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And there were massive organizations of, of protests and stuff like that around protecting the Affordable Care Act. And ultimately, because I think of that massive public pressure, the repeal effort eventually failed. So we see that in between elections, right, not just when people go into the ballot box, we see that the authority of the people is exercised, ideally, yeah. right, always. Yeah, so that sort of gets at the basics of what's liberalism, what's democracy, and what is liberal democracy mm -hmm. when you combine those two things. Right. In, in short, it looks a lot like what you think of when you think of democracy, when you think of American democracy. It's very familiar at the end of the day. Right. But breaking those down is helpful because I think it's important we talk about can liberalism or can democracy exist without the other? I think that's a really useful way of thinking about liberal democracy, right? I think sort of breaking it down in component parts and like sort of trying to imagine what they would look like without each other for understanding why the system that we have today works the way it does, whether you like the way it works or whether you don't like the way it works. I think it's good to sort of break it down um, and look at them on an individual level, what they would right. look like without each other to get a better sense of what the whole is pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's an important question. Once you've broken it down, can they exist with it alone? Can you have democracy without liberalism? And mm -hmm. can you have liberalism without democracy? And I think it's useful when asking that question to sort of go to some thought experiments. What right. would that look like? Right. So what would democracy look like without liberalism? We can just tackle that first. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, go ahead. I think of, you know, a great example. It's not even really a thought experiment. Right. It's reality. If you look at Hungary. So in Hungary right now, they have a leader, Viktor Orban, who's been in power for a number of years now. He is quoted saying that the regime that he's trying to construct in Hungary is an, quote, illiberal democracy. So democracy without liberalism. Yeah. So, you know, this is his explicit intention. But here's the problem with that, because this is what this looks like. Because a key part of Orban's and his party's rhetoric and position on politics is very culturally nationalist, based on this idea of a certain true Hungarian people. Mm -hmm. And other people that don't fit that category aren't entitled to the same rights. Right. That's why he wants an illiberal democracy, because there are true Hungarians and there are people who are not Christian, right. you know, Muslims in particular. There are people who are not ethnically Hungarian, refugees, for example, right. who he wants to either block from coming into the country kick out of the country or get get rid of some of their legal rights. And at the end of the day, if all you have is democracy and a rule by the majority without the protections of liberalism, without the protections of right. liberalism, it leads to a bad place like that. Right. It, it brings you to a sort of disturbing point. I think I think, you know, right now there are bills that are making it harder for same-sex same couples in Hungary to adopt children, to start a family. I think that kind of thing goes on where, where the rights of certain individuals, because you impose rules that are that are antithetical to liberalism, antithetical to the protected rights of every individual and their, and their protected freedoms, that, that, that puts the society in a very dark place. I think it's also worth looking specifically at how institutionally we got to that point in Hungary or how Hungary has reached that point, because I think that that's also indicative of the ways in which the erosion of liberalism leads to the erosion of democracy, right? So for example, in Hungary in 
2010, when all of this started, Viktor Orban's party won a two-thirds majority in the Hungarian parliament. And essentially use that supermajority to rewrite the constitution, the rules of the game, to one, undermine the independence of the courts, but importantly, to rewrite the electoral laws of the country. So that in the past few elections, they actually haven't won a popular majority. They've won a plurality, meaning they've won the most votes, but not more than 50% of votes, while maintaining that parliamentary supermajority, right? So they can rewrite right. the rules of the game and have essentially become a one-party state because they have used that you know, this idea of illiberal democracy, that they are the only, that, that Viktor Orban and his party are the only legitimate representatives of the people to govern in, a, in effectively in a one-party way. And it's going to be very hard in the future, in future elections, to dislodge him from power because a coalition of all the other parties that exist in Hungary would have to get well over 50% of the popular vote in the country to be able to access a parliamentary majority that could dislodge Viktor Orban, right? So the idea is right. that once liberalism is eroded, democracy tends to be eroded with it. So in right. that sense, we see see that democracy can't quite survive without liberalism, without that guarantee of the political equality of, of citizens, without certain rights to speech and assembly so being guaranteed. Right. Because if you don't have the rights to stand up for yourself and defend yourself against encroaches of the government, then you're going to lose democracy too. Right. 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 Liberalism gives you the rights that you need to speak up, right. to organize to defend your interests and keep the government accountable besides votes. Mm -hmm. And so once you lose liberalism, you're going to lose democracy at the end of the day too. Not only, not only does it doesn't a liberal democracy lead to all kinds of really disturbing social scenarios like we're seeing in Hungary, but it also leads to a destruction of democracy too. It can't survive without right. liberalism. Right. right. I mean, and, and Hungary still has, I think this is also an important point is that there are a lot of countries in the world almost every country in the world these days holds elections, but a much smaller number of those countries that hold elections are actually democracies, right? So Hungary right. still holds elections, but the, the are outcome actually is- liberal democracies. Right, is, are, yeah, exactly, are actually liberal democracies. The outcome of those is essentially a foregone conclusion in Hungary and in many states around the world. What about then, let's just talk about for a second, liberalism without democracy. Is that possible? Right, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, the answer- basically is, is no, I don't think it is. But I think, again, there's an example, which I think is particularly illustrative and very close to home for us in a painful way in the United States. So in the American South, between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, I think we had essentially what we would, you know, the United States had these liberal guarantees in the Constitution, right? It said, you know, and in the Declaration, right, that there are these ideas that we are guaranteed certain rights under the regime, including the right to, to vote in elections. But, um, Black Americans in the South who were freed after the Civil War were effectively denied the right to participate in politics, either as to vote or to be elected as public officials. E even though they were legally constitutionally prescribed those rights exactly. at that point. Right. right. Even though even though those, those those constitutional rights were prescribed, right, even under the 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution, those rights were, were guaranteed. Political equality and the right to vote in elections were guaranteed, but on paper. Right, not in reality, and so you right. saw that there's some a regime which calls itself liberal, but in practice, may, I mean, it may be liberal for certain sections of the population, but in practice, unless you are enfranchised to vote, unless you have that power, unless you have that authority over government that you can exercise, you will not, you cannot enjoy the rights of democracy. Because um, even if they're prescribed, you don't have the power to hold leaders accountable to make sure exactly. that you are prescribed those rights. Right. Exactly. So without the vote you can't defend that paper guarantee. Right, right. And, and so that ability to be represented to, and have your, and to exercise that authority is 
absolutely key to maintaining the rights of liberalism that we enjoy. So right. one liberalism without the, without democracy is 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 in practice neither liberal nor democratic. In a liberal society that doesn't have a democracy, you lose the liberalism too. Right. Yes. Right. It, exactly. Liberalism can't sustain itself. Right. And so we see that even when you have these like two ideas, right? Democracy without liberalism, liberalism without democracy. Not only is one totally, you know, lost or diminished, right? But the other is significantly eroded. And so there's this kind of need that they have for each other, actually, right. Right? this guarantee of rights in conjunction with political participation. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. not only do they need each other, liberalism and democracy, but they actually complement each other. Right. Yeah, I think we see in a lot of ways that they, in combination, when working, make people's lives better, right? So the first one I think we've sort of gone, you know, it emerges intuitively from what we talked about above, is that political equality and consent of the governed are sort of self-reinforcing, right? When you can vote, you can exercise your authority over the government to ensure that it protects your rights. And when you have those rights, you know, you're going to be more likely, right, to be able to vote because you have access to things like information, freedom of the press, yeah. and right to assemble, to demonstrate democratically for political objectives that you need right so we see that the, the political equality and consent of the governed are mutually reinforcing at their yeah. best liberalism and democracy reinforce each other yeah and then i think there's also this interesting sort of economic component to liberalism right is that liberalism says that we are guaranteed the right to have private property yeah. basically under all terms and from that stems what we think of as the market economy or the capitalist economy or the free market. That because I can own this property and I can do with it what I want, I can sell it at a profit and make money, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I can buy what I want and I can do the same thing. Right. And you know, I, I understand that sort of markets might be a little bit controversial today, but I think one, you know, theory that runs through liberalism um, and, and liberal democracy is that, you know, resource power is political power, right? To have control over resources in a lot of ways is to have control over right. political power, to decide right. what people do with their lives and what they do with their possessions and stuff like that. That material element can't be denied. And if all of the resource power is accrued to the state or some, you know, we'll talk about it more, but private individuals, then, you know, that is enormous leverage that can be used against the citizen population. Right. You can't count on being able to hold the government accountable if they can take away your food at a whim right 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 so and you know that's happened in many places throughout history and right. examples abound and we don't need to get into them but the point is that when you decentralize economic power you also decentralize political power and that helps to reinforce democratic systems of government because it ensures that the government doesn't just accrue all right. of the power in the society and then potentially abused people. Right. And there are theories of the decentralization of resource power that would not entail a capitalist economy necessarily. And there are some examples of that happening right on a very small scale. But in mass society, in history, we have never seen any kind of decentralized resource power that also leads to that is that is non-capitalist and also leads to right decentralized political power. So we'll, we're just we can you know talk about alternatives to capitalism stuff, which I think is, are interesting ideas that we can discuss in later podcast episodes. But for now, keep it simple to the decentralization of resource power right through the market is something that we think complements liberal democracy because it prevents, as Philip said, from, you know, someone, some person who has consolidated resource power, be that government or a private individual, from taking your house or your food away from you. Also, besides the deconsolidation of power or the decentralization of power that helps to support democracy also when you decentralize economic power theoretically more people have more power 
to purchase the things that they want to lead a happy life. A house, you know, goods that they want that will make them happy. And when you do that, when you have an economic system in which more people have more power to do that, yeah. then more people have more power to achieve and acquire a basic minimum standard of living that creates contentedness or happiness or general well-being, then you've got more people who are happy with their lives and thus happy with the political situation. And that supports democracy too because you need people to be happy with their situation or contend right. with their situation. Otherwise, they'll either not participate or they'll seek a new form of government. Right, right. And so I think sort of an interesting kind of, I don't know if it's quite a flip side to that, but an interesting aspect of that is that sort of the government also then has to kind of structure the market in such a way through government policy. And I would say, I would argue personally that all that the markets are almost entirely structured through government policy, but the, but the government has to structure markets in such a way that people are able to achieve those resources, right? So that means taxes, right, to prevent the consolidation of economic power in the hands of wealthy individuals, right? right? Because just as we talked about, it's dangerous for the government to consolidate economic power. It's equally dangerous for some private individual or individuals, because then you can get, you know, an oligarchy or right. things like that, monopoly, where, where, right. where certain private individuals who are not accountable to the public because there's no system of votes and accountability, right. they could also abuse the public right. if they if they gain too many. So you've got to you've got to avoid that. Right. Right. Exactly. So you have to avoid that. And so sometimes that means like that means establishing things like minimum wages. Right. And sometimes even provisioning certain goods outside of the realm of, you know, the the free market in order to ensure and antitrust laws, right, and antitrust laws. Exactly. I mean, in order to ensure that people do have access to a, some level of material fulfillment where they will be, you know, content with their life under the democratic regime because people don't always go to the polls thinking I want to vote for democracy. Right. People will go to the polls thinking, how am I going to be better off? very much in a material sense um, under these rulers. And so democracy does have to take that. Liberal democracy does have to take that into account. So, I mean, just to sum that up, the idea is like the decentralization of resource power and the structure of the market economy so that, you know, political power is not rested in the hands of government, but also so that it doesn't accrue to private individuals and so that everyone can be sort of materially better off. And that's why we yeah. see almost all modern liberal democracies have a welfare state and stuff like that, because that's how the government provisions resources without and, and you a know, basic and minimum of, right, resource. Right. And yeah. networks of regulation that sort of strike a balance between, you know, over centralization of power and over decentralization that then becomes central, becomes centralized. Exactly. Yeah. Right, for in private. So lands. basically so far. The point is that liberalism and democracy can't exist without each other. Right. They do actually reinforce and support each other in right. some really important ways. The trouble is, and we're seeing some of this today, is that they're not perfect partners. Right. They right. do have tensions. And for example, on that subject, let's start on the economic side of things. Just as we're talking about the economic pros of liberalism and democracy, the ways in which they work together, there also are problems economically. So if you get a consolidation of economic power, basically, you decentralize too much and you get a snowball effect in which one person without regulation by the government or a few people without regulation by the government consolidate economic power, they can undermine liberalism and democracy. So they could say, now that I have more power, effectively, I'm going to have more sway on government because if I call right. up a congressional representative for my town, he or she's going to pick up and he or she's not going to pick up for just 
just anybody, right? right? Because my decisions affect lots of people, right? Because I have that economic power, exactly. And then once you have a, a little bit of economic power that's greater than other people, you can affect change to empower yourself to acquire more economic power, and then you get sort of a self-reinforcing system, yeah, whereby you can undermine the equality of individuals, and you can also undermine democracy representing people equally. Right, right. I mean, I think that's important. I think that liberal democracies with market economies, which is all liberal democracies, face this issue where, you know, the interests of, you know, those who are owners of capital can exercise a sort of a larger influence on politics because there's this material component of democracy wherein the growth of the economy or the well or the, you know, the well-being of the economy has an effect on how people, you know, are, are, are on, the, on their level of contentedness, right? If the economy plunges, people are going to be upset with the regime, right? There is that dependence. And so businesses have a sort of privileged position in society where they have power over the sort of thing that politicians need. The politicians need the economy to, to you know, to be doing well so that they can get voted back into office. So the politicians have an incentive to listen more to sort of interests that have that are that are wealthy, right? And the people who, you know, people who have through their resource power, a lot of say over or a lot of influence over the well being of, of everyone else who might not have as much resource power. So as long as you have that you have this, this issue where the wealthy have a larger influence in in political life, and you can sort of, you know, ameliorate this through things like labor unions and, you know, welfare states. But nonetheless, it, it, it kind of exists everywhere. Perhaps, right, I think you could argue to much greater extent in the United States than maybe in Denmark or Sweden. It does exist, and it's kind of a, it is kind of a permanent tension. As long as you have right this capitalist economy, right. this is going to be something that 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 does exist, right? And there are rules around it. You can you know, campaign finance and stuff, and anti lobbying legislation. But nonetheless, it's there. And I think Philip, your point is that it becomes cyclical. is right. very important, and that is a real danger and a, and a permanent tension, a permanent threat for liberal democratic society. Yeah, and besides that. Besides that economic component, you've also got a situation in which you might have a popular will, and we talked about this a little bit above, you might have a popular will which goes against the tenets of either liberalism or democracy. So if you have a liberal democracy, even though you have those rights prescribed, you could still have, could still get a majority that says, we don't care, we don't want that to be the case. We don't want this group of people to be entitled to those rights. Right. We want to take them away. We want to kick them out. We want to abuse them, whatever we want to do. Right. And that can pose a real danger for liberal democracy. And it's and I think liberal liberalism exposes that particular weakness because we have, right, under liberalism, freedom of expression, right? So I have the power to start a movement for a state religion in the United States. And yeah. I could I could like that is I, I'm empowered to do that because I have free speech. I have the right to worship the God that I choose to worship. I have the right to theoretically assemble a group of people or to run an op-ed in the press that says those things. And liberalism kind of has to allow for that, right? It has to, has, to has to allow for people for, to challenge it. Right. It has to allow is, for speech that challenges liberalism. Yeah. Um which can or put you which in some, challenges democracy, right? Yeah, which, which can put you in some dangerous situations. And I could say I think the people who don't agree with me aren't allowed to vote, or people who don't look like me shouldn't be allowed to vote. I mean, those are things that you know are are, are scary possibilities in a liberal democracy because the rules of liberalism suggest that that has to be allowed. Which is, on the one hand, of course, we wouldn't want to give up our rights to free speech, but we also have to you know look at a, at, at the idea that illiberal speech has to be allowed in a liberal democracy. Yeah. And one last tension, I think this one is really important, would be that institutions generate winners and losers, no matter what, right? So 
the institution is liberal democracy, just like any regime or any any you know sort of social arrangement, some people are going to not get what they want in in that arrangement, right? Everything is sort of kind of, not only things are sometimes a compromise where everyone gets a little bit of what they want, and sometimes one group just gets what they want and another group doesn't. And so in in a liberal democracy, right, if your political party loses out in the election, you're going to think, oh, well, I just lost out. And sometimes that comes along with a sense of, of lost legitimacy, right, for the regime, for the political, for the government, because your, your guys aren't it, in there. It could make people, what you're trying to say is that it can make people feel like the regime is less legitimate. Right. Because right. I'm not supposed to lose. Right. Exactly. And sometimes those winner and lo- winner loser situations are generated historically, right? And I think this is important to consider because historically speaking, we have seen that marginalized groups that are not white, not male in the United States lose out time and time again throughout our history. And right. so and, you know, recently, I think we've seen a resurgence in sort of calling for recognition, you know, pointing out that, you know, a lot of these inequities still have not been addressed. And so these people are still institutional losers in, you know, the democratic game. And they're, you know, in my view, they are totally right to do so. And so that creates sort of a, a feeling where the regime becomes, feels less legitimate. Yeah. And one, ahead, of, yeah, and one of the important things is that to the people who are historical winners, right. when you start to ameliorate that situation and you start to approach a greater level of equality in the society, it can make those historical winners feel a sense of relative deprivation. Right. Where they've been in a relatively high position of treatment compared to those historical losers. And so when you start to equalize those levels, it feels like you're 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 going down, you're losing. And that's why you get you know things like white reactionary conservatives right. saying actually in today's America I'm oppressed. Right. There's no way to explain the past 4 years without accounting for that fact that that right. historical winners are seeing a changing of the balance or fear the possibility of changing the balance simply by witnessing demands for recognition right. by those historical losers. Yeah. Uh, and so that yeah, that can contribute to all kinds of populist right and conservative backlash right. that seeks to change the rules of the system, do right. things, you know, differently. And that can be a real danger for liberal democracy. So that's sort of an that's sort of an example in which creating a liberal democracy is very difficult. Right. Because in many ways America hasn't been a really full articulation of a liberal democracy in its history. Right. But every, you know, we're essentially we're trying to get closer and closer. Some of us. And <laughs> yeah. And the trouble is that when you try to get closer, when you're when when you've been a ways off for most of your history, those are one of, that's one of the distinct challenges that you can face. One of the distinct tensions that can exist in creating a liberal democracy is equality, not feeling like equality. Because at the end of the day, it's not the reality that people feel. People are going to have different ways of looking at the same reality. And so if you try to approximate equality more closely in reality, different people are going to feel differently. And it's those feelings that really shape people's political behavior, right? not whether that equality is truer or not. Right. I mean, just look, for example, of this, like a really strong historical example is just look at what happened. You get voting rights in 1965, and then three years later, conservatives in the country pivot to 
the Southern strategy, which is based on a a racist strategy that is based on dividing people. And you see the reactionary backlash to demands for recognition, to, to policy changes that bring you know, the United States closer to a democracy, you see a, a rapid turnaround. And, you know, I don't think that that has been fully recovered from since. And I think we're yeah. just seeing, you know, reiterations of that struggle again and again, right? Demands for recognition followed by backlash, policy changes followed by backlash. So that's like the idea of this relative deprivation where all of a sudden you feel the dominant class feels like it's on its back foot. And so it reacts right. in those ways. Um, and that right. is a real challenge for liberal democracy. And so the point of this whole discussion, essentially, is to say that liberalism and democracy are self-reinforcing, but it's not perfect. Right. And either getting to that point of liberal democracy or maintaining yourself at a point of liberal democracy requires constant recalibration and adjustment. Right, right. Because there are tensions that are going to throw things out of whack over time if they're not paid attention to. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's like whether or not the scales ever were balanced or ever were properly calibrated in the United States. I think the answer is, is no. But I think that to a significant extent, they've gotten in the past six or so years, it's actually gotten significantly worse. And so what do we do not only to reverse right current dramatic trends, but how to get ourselves back on back on any kind of a course to right. a better society in the long run, I think are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. Right. And I think in part that demands that people have a clear understanding of liberalism and democracy and the relations between them, because all too often in situations like our present moment, these problems that we're seeing can lead people to believe, well, let's have one or the other. Let's, Let's keep democracy. Let's get rid of those liberal equal rights, or let's keep those liberal equal rights. But we don't want those rubes in this, you know, in wherever the Midwest and the South voting for Trump. So let's get rid of democracy. Right. Right. And it, it's on both sides of the political spectrum, this feeling that we can take one, but not the other. Right. And, and pointing out, talking about the ways in which that doesn't work. And it's, it's not going to work out the way that people think it's going to work out or people right. want it to work out. And that's really important that people are introduced to these concepts and think about politics in this way. Mm-hmm. as balancing the tensions between liberalism and democracy, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's what it is. Right. That's right. all of it. Right. Exactly. I agree. And I think that that sort of leads to what we're going to, I think one of the plan is to talk about next week a little bit is like, how do we hit that balance? And I think sort of there's sort of a debate, right, between like, do we want this sort of more minimalist conception of democracy where the state exists and maybe libertarian to protect property rights and have a military to make sure that we're, you know, safe at home? Or do we want something that is more maximalist, that has some substantive commitments to, you know, economic rights or even certain ideological positions? Does either one of those facilitate? Is there some midpoint between those things and sort of figuring out how we balance those tensions? What does that look like? Is democracy, there's certain minimal conditions necessary for democracy or liberal democracy to function or do we need more substantive guarantees in order for it to work and i think well i'm I'm excited to talk about it yeah and we're glad to have you we hope you enjoyed this discussion about the basics of democratic theory and if you'd like to join harry and i for next week's edition of spectacles bird's eye we'll be talking about what he said and hopefully after listening to this you have a clearer picture of why what we're trying to do at spectacles is so important this new way of looking at politics yeah and also you know if you have any kind of feedback for us at all there should be comment section on the website or you can just shoot us an email at contact at spectacles.news and we would love to hear from you and we will respond absolutely
Well, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.